0: Hello and welcome to Vanguard Books. Today we're going to take a look at a book that I found a few years ago. I don't remember where I heard of it, but it's a very important book for understanding the degradation of uh, Protestantism into the uh, most prominent non-Jewish part of the tyranny that runs us today, and it it, it kind of uh, defines the mentality. This book is The Feminization of American Culture. It was written by Ann Douglas, a feminist in the 70s, but she was not a clown feminist. She was a serious academic, a genuine scholar, and uh, she wrote about a 400-page PhD thesis published as about a 400-page paperback book, which I have a copy of. You'll see it referred to occasionally. This book, though, it's not all that commonly found. I'm sure you could buy it online. But uh, um, this really shows the way, while, men were, while white men were building America, you know, this brand new continent. They're spreading out. and They're building buildings and canals and railroads and what have you. There comes to be the rise of a, of a sort of middle class culture. And the hard masculine work is being done in business. And as the Protestant churches are sort of disestablished, that means they're not formally supported by the state, they have to cater to clients and customers. And guess who those customers are? Why? They're women. And women go in more for the soft stuff than for the hard stuff. Penises aside, of course. But, uh, so we see the rise of kind of a middle class Victorian uh, sentimental literature is what Douglas is saying and she's a serious enough scholar and even feminist to to recognize that something is lost when you go from the hard old disciplined core of the original Protestantism of the puritans which was very focused on one's own individual character and on intellectual rigor and great energy and that degraded into feelings mush from the early 1800s on and that eventually set up uh nicely for the social gospel and the jews sweeping in through immigration towards the end of the 19th century kind of left the reins sitting there for them to grab and to twist that sentimentalization to uh, political ends uh, sort of the effeminization or the feminization of american culture by Ann Douglas, looking at the book, there's a picture of a presumably a bourgeois middle class woman, you know, nicely attired, flipping through a magazine. And she has a giant, what a, like one of those supersized uh, China teacups by her. So that's kind of uh, what we're dealing with. And let's look at what the I haven't taped up. I love the feeling of tape in a book, on a paperback book under my fingers. I just, I don't know. I really feel the need. Books should be a certain size. You have to feel that you can get your fingers around them. And if you feel if you can get your fingers around them correctly, and they don't weigh too much, they're not too thick, then you know that the writer has done his work. And then you can get your mind around it. It's it's all prepared for you. Ann Douglas, A-N-N-D-O-U-G-L-A-S, Avon book. Cover, Avon Discus. 295, this was sold for when it when it came out. This was written in the 70s. The Feminization of American Culture. A fascinating, this is New York Times, a fascinating and original vision of the origins of modern mass culture. Indispensable reading for modern feminists, in, and indeed anybody else of serious intelligence. Now, you know I would never waste your time with a book that's a crap or teaches stuff that's... Uh, wrong and useless and pointless that you can get anywhere else this is not one of those books this has actual good material that's why we're learning now we flip the cover and what do we see inside there's a book plate from the library of and then in a a type from a typewriter so that shows you how old it is the association of duke women how about that i honestly i don't remember where i acquired this book i i must have probably i bought it But I probably bought it when I bought in 2005. I bought, like I've said, about $1,000 worth of books, and I've still only gone through about one-third to two-third of them, seriously. And this may have been part of that trove that I still have today, which we will eventually get to. Yeah, I'm looking at my, like, A Terrible Revenge by Desaius, The French Revolution by Nesta Webster. I can see them right now. Our Father's Fields, that's a book about the South and traditionalism down there and the Celtic theory by Cantrell. He always pushed that book. I've never yet got around to reading it. Baker's Race Book, Ardry, The Territorial Imperative. All these are the ones I got back then that I still have not yet got to So much good stuff to do, but today we're doing The Feminization of American Culture. Now that was the front cover, now on the back cover, what does it say? A discus book published by Avon Books, so a subset of one of the major Jewish houses out of New York. This woman was a feminist, but a a scholar, genuine scholar, not a fool. This book is important, stimulating, controversial. The New York Review of Books, that's a... uh, like a tabloid. I used to enjoy reading that sometimes. Of course, I didn't agree. It was a 90% Jews talking about Jews, writing about Jews. But still, some interesting stuff in it from time to time. Yeah, you, you got to take what you can get in this world sometimes. Now, here's a uh, the blurbs in the back. Was the market for Jacqueline Suzanne and the maiden form Bra created in prudish Victorian America? The brilliant and provocative thesis of this book is that the Victorian alliance between women and the clergy and the popular literature to which that alliance gave birth, fostered a sentimental society in the beginnings of modern mass culture. That's a very articulate statement of the thesis. It was the age that created the soap opera, a time when the combined sales of Melville, Thoreau, and Whitman, i.e. the serious writers of that period, were surpassed by Fanny Fern's fern leaves from Fanny's Portfolio. So that would have been like 19th century cosmopolitan type stuff. Anne Douglas examines the best-selling novels and magazines of the day to show how women exploited their feminine image and idealized the very qualities that kept them powerless. Timidity, piety, narcissism, and a disdain for competition. The result was a far-reaching social preoccupation with glamour, banal melodrama, and mindless consumption. Here is a major rethinking of the American past, with shocks of recognition for everyone today. And then, a feminist work in the best sense of the word. Its author laments the violence done in the name of gender to both men and women, a responsible and passionate act of scholarship, The Atlantic, and an exciting readable book, The New Republic. So... That's what people were saying about the Americanization or the feminization of American culture. So we're understanding the origins of America and how we got the mindset that we have today. And this book is a key to understanding uh, the the period really before the Jews showed up in mass and uh, the uh, the mentality that was then extant. Opening the book, we find the bio page. Anne Douglas was born in 1942 and educated at Harvard, where she received her B.A. and Ph.D. From 64 to 66, she studied Victorian literature at Oxford. Victorian literature she studied at Oxford. She has taught at Princeton, and she is currently a member of the faculty at Columbia, that infamous source of uh, all things uh, Jew academic, where she teaches American literature and culture at Columbia in New York. Okay. Flipping again for my friends Peter Wood and Christine Stanzel, Larry Gross, Elizabeth Kendall. Don't know any of them, but just I read that to see, you know, who she's dedicating it to. Might give you a little clue into her mindset. Any Jews in there? Gross is probably a Jew. Avon Books, a division of the Hearst Company, out of New York, New York. Copyright 1977, so, you know, around the time Jaws has just come out, and uh, mid-70s, Greece, disco, feminism, uh, ERA, ERA battles are going strong. Published by arrangement with Alfred A. Knopf, one of the big uh, Jewish publishers. Guy Mencken dealt with out of New York. One of the major, what, six houses, basically, all Jew-owned out of New York, so this is published by one of those houses so uh it's it's a uh, mainstream book. Now today we're just going to do the acknowledgments and the introduction. This is a three-part book of about 400 pages. About 100 200 100, but uh yeah, we'll just do a little bit today just to get into get, get the thesis stirring in our minds. And so in her acknowledgment she says and it tells a lot about the writer. Usually they just use boilerplate, but sometimes you can, you can get a, glean a little insight into their psychology and where they're coming from, man. But uh, she says, I would like to express my gratitude to my teachers, Alan Heimert and the late Perry Miller, who imparted to me their belief in the centrality of religion in the American experience centrality of religion in the American experience. I think that's defensible. Their example taught me the meaning of exhaustive, committed, and heroic scholarship, so we know at least what she admires or affects to admire, for we don't take things at face value. Over my years of teaching at Harvard, Princeton, and Columbia, I have gained innumerable insights from various students, colleagues, and friends, but I would like to mention particularly Nancy Osterud, that'd be Swedish. Barry O'Connell, that's Irish. John Stendhal, again, that's Swedish. Don Whaley, that would be probably Irish. George Forgy, uh, I don't know, might be French, might be Scottish. Michael Bell, that'd be probably English, possibly Irish. Peter Sachs, probably a German Jew. Gail Parker, uh, English or who knows, could be married to someone. And Elaine Showalter, that's generally a Jew name. That's how you read to understand the influence. And, of course, you know the general milieu. You work outside in. So this is a woman, very much part of the Northeastern Corridor and the establishment institutions, the top colleges in the land. And those are the people she cites as particular influences. Presumably, they're academics. She says, all of whom help me define and respect my special material. Sakvan Berkovich was kind enough to read and criticize my manuscript. I benefited greatly from his suggestions. Emile DeAntonio helped me to clarify my thinking. His courage in making difficult intellectual and political commitments forced me to re-examine and solidify my own convictions. My mother, Margaret Taylor, so she sounds like a good WASP type, Douglas Taylor. Douglas could be Scottish also. My mother, Margaret Taylor, has been as important to this book as to my life. Her encouragement and her strength have sharpened my desire to understand our common feminine heritage, feminine heritage, and to work for a better feminine future, feminine future. Thanks are also due to the staff of the Schlesinger Library in Cambridge, Massachusetts, most notably Jeanette Cheek, whose helpfulness and expertise were invaluable. I am grateful for the invaluable aid provided by my editors at Knopf, Jane Garrett and Alice Quinn, and by my copy editors, Deborah zwecker there's Zv- with a ch instead of a C-K, c k and Stephanie golden, both of them are almost surely Jews for Carl Shorsky of Princeton University. he's not necessarily a jew that actually sounds more german for karl schorsky s c h o r s k e of Princeton whom I was privileged to know during most of the seven years I worked on this book, seven years she worked on this book, it was her Ph.D. thesis, my gratitude and admiration are unbounded. He's not one I'm familiar with. His work and his discourse have provided me with an unparalleled model of intellectual richness and rigor, which has, at every turn, quickened, clarified, and deepened my motive. Of the friends to whom this book is dedicated and who inspired and guided its creation, I can only say that I am grateful for their example and support. I am fortunate in having such companion companions and leaders in the effort to understand, resist, and vivify our culture. I don't even know what that word means or if that's actually even a real word, if it's maybe a typo, vivify. I'm going to look that up. Well, I don't see it, so I'm going to guess it's a typo for Vivify. Anyway, she wrote that acknowledgments in Ann Douglas, New York City, May 1st, 1976. So about just under 40 years ago from when I'm uh, reading it to you. And we'll see. You see. You can tell well, what's notable about that in relation to the feminists of today: the absolute absence of snark, the deep seriousness, the earnestness, the genuine humility and thankfulness. This was more serious feminism than what we see today, at least online. And so now we're going to deal with, and it will be all that we're going to do today is just a uh, introduction and this will really set the tone for what we're talking about. Introduction, The Legacy of American Victorianism, The Meaning of Little Eva. She says, Today many Americans, intellectuals as well as less scholarly people, feel a particular fondness for the artifacts, the literature, the mores, the mores of our Victorian past. I wrote this book because I am one of these people. As a child, I read with formative intensity in a collection of Victorian sentimental fiction, a legacy from my grandmother's girlhood. Reading these stories, I first discovered the meaning of absorption, the pleasure and guilt of possessing a secret supply. I read through the Elsie Dinsmore books, the Patty books, and countless others. I followed the timid exploits of the innumerable pale and pious heroines. But what I remember best, what was for me, as for so many others, the archetypical and arch- archetypically satisfying scene in this domestic genre, was the death of little Eva in Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which, uh, you know, even Lincoln would say precipitated the Civil War. So the scene that touched her the most was the death of little Eva in Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. A pure and beautiful child in a wealthy southern family, little Eva dies in a lingering and sainted death of consumption. Her adoring papa and a group of equally adoring slaves cluster in unspeakable grief around her bedside while she dispenses Christian wisdom and her own golden locks with profuse generosity. The poignancy of her closing scene is in no way diminished by the fact that a good third of the story is yet to come and must proceed without her. Little Eva's significance has curiously little to do with the plot in the book in which she appears, for little Eva gains her force not through what she does, not even through what she is, but through what she does and is to us, the readers. Of course, any character in a, any book is partic- peculiarly available to her or his audience and dependent on it. A book can be produced by the millions, as this one was, simply as a character in a story, Little Eva is a creature not only of her author's imagination, but of her reader's fantasy. Her life stems from our acceptance of her and our involvement with her, but Little Eva is one of us in more special ways. Her admirers have always been able to identify with her, even while they worship or weep at her shrine. She does not demand the respect we accord a competitor. She is not extraordinarily gifted, or at least she is young enough so that her talents have not had a chance to take on formidable proportions." If she is lovely-looking and has a great deal of money, Stowe makes it amply clear that these attributes are more a sign, of her, a sign than a cause of her success. Little Eva's virtue lies partly in her femininity, surely a common enough commodity. And her greatest act is dying, something we all can and must do. Her death, moreover, is not particularly effective in any practical sense. During her last days, she urges her father to become a serious Christian and to free his slaves, He dies himself, however, before he has gotten around to doing either. Little Eva's death is not futile, but it is essentially decorative, and therein perhaps lay its charm for me and for others. Stowe intended Little Eva's patient and protracted death as an exemplum of religious faith, but it does not operate exclusively as such. Little Eva is devout, precociously spiritual in a way that would have been recognizable to an 18th century theologian like jonathan edwards the sinners in the hands of an angry god fellow as to the typical mid-19th century reader reader yet her religious significance comes not only from her own extreme religi- religiosity but also from the protective veneration it arouses in the other characters in the book and presumably in her readers her religious identity like her death is confused with the response it evokes. It is important to note that little Eva doesn't actually convert anyone. Her sainthood is there to precipitate our nostalgia and our narcissism. We are meant to bestow on her that fondness we reserve for the contemplation of our own softer emotions. If camp, and remember Susan Sontag had written notes on camp more or less around this period, taking something seriously and mocking it at the same time, kind of. If she, she wrote an essay on that, which I have not actually read, I don't believe. But uh, if camp, in quotes, is art that is too excessive to be taken seriously, art that courts our tenderness, then little Eva suggests Christianity beginning to function as camp. Her only real demand under readers is for self-indulgence. Stowe's infantile heroine anticipates that exaltation of the average which is the trademark of mass culture. Vastly superior as she is to most of her figurative offspring, she is nonetheless the childish predecessor of Miss America, of Teen Angel, of the ubiquitous, everyday, wonderful girl about whom thousands of popular songs and movies have been made. The exaltation of the average. Like her descendants, she flatters the possibilities of her audience. She does not quicken their aspirations. In a sense, my introduction to little Eva and to the Victorian scenes, objects, and sensibility of which she is suggestive was my introduction to consumerism. The pleasure little Eva gave me provided historical and practical preparation for the equally indispensable and disquieting comforts of mass culture. Perhaps Victorian sentimentality appeals to us not because it is so remote, but because it is so near. Its products have the heightened and endearing vigor that comes from being the first of a line, but their line continues, unbroken if debased, to our own day. We treat Victoriana today with the same ambiguity we reserve for consumer pleasures provided by our televisions, movie screens, and radios, whatever our fondness for American Victorian culture. Our critical evaluation of its most characteristic manifestations is often low. Terms like camp, used to describe phenomena such as Little Eva, socialize our ongoing, unexplored embarrassment. We Americans are, after all, the first society in history to locate and express many personal, quote, unique, unquote, feelings and responses through dime-a-dozen artifacts. I will argue throughout this book for the intimate connection between critical aspects of Victorian culture and modern mass culture. 20th century America is believed, if in a pejorative sense, to be more modern than other modern cultures. 19th century America was, in certain senses, senses also usually considered pejorative, more Victorian than other countries to whom the term is applied. Even England, whose queen was the source of the word Victorian, was less entirely dominated by what we think of as the worst, the most sentimental aspects of the Victorian uh, spirit than, than America was. It seems indicative, for, for example, that the Sunday school movement, with its saccharine simplification of dogma, found fewer obstacles and greater success in America than in England. Putting it another way, I might say that Victorian culture in England represented a complex and intelligent collaboration of available resources unparalleled in America. My point can be clarified by glancing at Victorian literature in the two countries. England's major writers, Charles Dickens, William Makepeace Thackeray, or wrote Vanity Fair, and George Eliot, or wrote Silas Martyr and other stuff, dedicated their enormous talents to an exploration of Victorianism, which, by the sheer fact of assuming its inescapability, complicated and enriched it. It was their treatment of their subjects, not their subject, that distinguished them from other less talented English writers. Even today, they restore for us the context and possible seriousness of what are now more or less abandoned literary themes. Feminine purity, the sanctity of the childish heart, above all, the meaning of religious conformity. So these are the themes of serious Victorian writers in England. In contrast, major American authors of the Victorian era like James Fenimore Cooper, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry David Thoreau, Herman Melville, and Walt Whitman turned their sights principally on values and scenes that operated as alternatives to cultural norms. Their subjects, as well as their styles, differ from those of many of their American contemporaries. They wrote of dramas of the forest, the sea, the city. They sought to bring their readers into direct confrontation with the more brutal facts of America's explosive development. Thoreau, Cooper, Melville, and Whitman wrote principally about men, not girls and children, and they wrote about men engaged in economically and ecologically significant activities, you know, whaling and, and, and uh, building bridges and, and uh, railroads and stuff. When they treated Victorian moors, or kind of indoor, civilized, uh, middle-class life, With a few notable exceptions, they either satirized them or lapsed into pro forma imitations of conventional models. It was as if America's finest authors refused to redeem the virgin, the child, and the home from the isolation imposed precisely by their status as cult objects. They abandoned them to unreality. So the literary talent in America didn't focus on women, virgins, or the church, or conformity, or Middle class life, it was focused on the dynamic building of the society by men outdoors. But in England, the literary talent did go into those subjects, is what uh, Douglas is arguing. Here, at mid-19th century in America, we see the beginnings of the split between elite and mass culture so familiar today. It is indicative of Victorian England's greater cultural cohesiveness... And of course England's a much smaller place it's not even as big as one American state half the time that almost all the mid 19th century English authors we currently admire were admired by their contemporaries in contrast many of the American writers of the same period we now value were underrated and little read in their own time uh, people like melville who were they weren't they didn't die of starvation but they basically didn't make any money off their works and they weren't really super respected or even read at all is what she's saying Those who, like Stowe, were highly esteemed are hardly studied today. Author of uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, of course. So the British writers wrote about these these feminine sentimental themes, and they were praised and read at the time, but the American ones wrote about other stuff, and they were not so much known or, or esteemed then as they are today. Yet an examination of precisely what we dislike, at least theoretically, in the popular writers of the Victorian era, their debased religiosity, their sentimental peddling of Christian belief for its nostalgic value, is crucial for understanding American culture in the 19th century and in our own. The very ambiguity of our response is itself a motive for exploration. Such an examination will constitute the subject of my book. Between 1820 and 1875... And there's a blank line there so she's kind of moving into her second little thing in this theme of in this introduction there's between 1820 and 1875 in the midst of the transformation of the american economy into the most powerfully aggressive capitalist system in the world american culture seemed bent on establishing a perpetual mothers day 1820 to 1875 the middle part of the 1800s as the secular activities of american life were demonstrating their utter supremacy Religion became the message of America's official and conventional cultural life. This religion was hardly the Calvinism of the founders of the Bay Colony, or that of New England's great 18th century divines. It was a far cry, moreover, from the faith which, at least imaginatively, still engaged serious authors like Melville and Hawthorne. This is the old-style, original founders, Puritans, uh, Protestant Christianity, when they were very serious about the individual character and moral failings. As you read anything about Hawthorne, it's always about moral failings and how the individuals in society deal with them. But they became less so, it became sentimentalized, a uh, piffle over the course of the 1800s. Of course, not on so low a level as we have today, when literacy has declined further. Since, well, for uh, there are more people there are more dumb people, and there are more non-book options. Okay, so, under Calvinism, so she's saying the faith of the, 19, of the 1800s was different from the earlier faith that at least imaginatively still engaged serious authors like Melville and Hawthorne. Under Calvinism, in quotes, we can place much of what rigorous theology Protestant Americans have ever officially accepted Until roughly 1820, this theological tradition was a chief, perhaps the chief, vehicle of intellectual and cultural activity in American life, the Calvinist theological tradition. Today that would be someone like Gary North. The Calvinist tradition culminated in the Edwardsian school most notably jonathan edwards a sinner's in the hands of an angry god from 1703 to 58 and his friends and followers samuel hopkins joseph bellamy nathaniel emmons e m m o n s 1745 to 1840 so these are all men who were born in the first half of the 1700s and lived up to uh, 1803 or 1758 or 1840 or 1790 so these are key 1700s figures in the Calvinist tradition. Jonathan Edwards, Samuel Hopkins, Joseph Bellamy, and Nathaniel Emmons. The Edwardsian school has often been mythologized. but he, The Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God is the most famous sermon ever preached in North America. And that's from Jonathan Edwards. And I think that was part of the new, there were a couple of great revivals of religious faith. But the point is, that serious hardcore religion, And I'm descended in part from Congregationalist preachers, and I have no doubt that they were of that school of being extremely focused on individual failings. And that comes through in my own hypercriticality. But they, they exhibited great energy and intellectual rigor and vigor, manly vigor. And that was even found in the priesthood, as in Jonathan Edwards. He's not there pandering and playing a modern flute and having girl altar boys and 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 you know playing jazz rock combos, he's saying you are original, you are sinners, and I don't know why God doesn't burn you in a grate over a, a burn barrel like a bunch of tent caterpillars, because you God knows you certainly deserve that. Now what is staying His hand? In, what is His infinite mercy? I have no freaking idea, but you don't deserve it. And they were that hardcore on people back then, and that that attitude still can be found but it's generally transmuted into a very very different political and more political form today more social form back then it was all about the individual character and that's when christianity was less destructive uh, on the uh, in a general social sense apart from uh, the, the any racial context where it still maintained the doctrinal problems that it christianity admits everybody but back then it had not degenerated into social gospel it was still about the individual' soul and salvation, and the priest had enough moral courage and actually believed his own bullshit that he would stand up there and lecture the people and the people at least thought that they needed that to hear that to keep their community morally straight, so it was more its it's just serious seriousness and rigor versus looseness and clownishness. A man is either a clown or he's a non clown, and that's the most fundamental division between them, and that goes for women too. When I say man, it, it, man encompasses woman. Jonathan Edwards, you know how I feel about Christianity. Jonathan Edwards was not a clown. None of these ones she mentioned, although I'm, it's not like I'm super familiar with them, I'm not, but they were not clowns. They were serious men. This was a serious tradition. This is the tradition. All the, the universities in the U.S. came out of this. Universities are almost a sidelight to uh, theology. They arose out of these theological schools, at least in the, in, in the White West. So, the Edwardsian, again, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, The Edwar, uh, Calvinism in the U.S., the, the serious theological tradition that founds our, our top colleges. The Edwardsian school has often been mythologized but whatever its very real faults, it undoubtedly see she's not she's not doing your typical feminist today be whining about patriarchy and how hateful these guys were and blah 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 and they dominating. She understands that this like Camille Paglia, another feminist, these are intellectually serious men, they're formidable people. And when someone is actually formidable, you don't make them go away by applying an adjective to them. And more serious older school feminists recognized this and dealt with them straight on. She would say, well, she might disagree with them, but she recognizes they're not clowns. They are serious. And when someone is serious, you have to deal with what it says seriously because it does pose a threat that can't simply be dismissed. The Edwardsian school has often been mythologized, but whatever its very real faults, it undoubtedly constituted the most persuasive example of independent, yet institutionalized thought to which our society has even temporarily given credence. Its members studied together, they trained questioned and defended one another like kind of like Jewish pill pull where they're studying the Talmud. they exhibited with some consistency the intellectual rigor and imaginative precision difficult to achieve without collective effort and certainly rare in more recent American annals that is as the the uh, places that these leaders of the community these theologians these preachers might be trained these sodalities these uh seminaries as they uh, they degraded they came under the the influence of stuff like the schofield bible when they became unserious and started preaching bogus doctrine and being anti-intellectual a lot of this what we're talking about here it has a religious cast but it's really the degradation of the intellect in American life, the the progressively taking less serious, seriously of ideas over the 1750 to 1950 period. For some time, roughly between 1740 and 1820, The rigor exhibited by the Edwardsian ministers seemed representative of the wider culture, or at least welcomed by it, 1740 to 1820. Now, the Great Revival, I think, started in the first couple decades of the 1700s. They're trying to get back to the original hard-ass Christianity of the uh, the people who founded the northeastern part of the country. Edwardsian theology, however, outlived its popular support. In the 18th and 19th centuries, as in the 20th, the vast majority of American Christians identified themselves as members of one of the various Protestant groups. Yet the differences between the Protestants of, say, 1800 and their descendants of 1875 and after are greater than the similarities. So she's saying that Protestantism after 1875 is radically different from Protestantism before 1800. The everyday Protestant of 1800 subscribed to a rather complicated and rigidly defined body of dogma. Attendance at a certain church had a markedly theological function. They were there for the doctrine, not for the socializing. Today it would be more of a social function, or even merely a location function. This church is nearby. The taking of ideas seriously waned as American culture degraded on all but the technical front. By 1875, American Protestants were much more likely to define their faith in terms of family morals, civic responsibility, and above all, in the terms of the social function of church going. Their actual creed, the actual things they claim that they believe, that their particular uh, church says it believes, was usually a liberal, even a sentimental one, for which Edward's sinners in the hands of an angry God, and his contemporaries would have felt scorn and horror. In an analogous way, Protestant churches over the same period shifted their emphasis from a primary concern with doctrinal beliefs of their members to a preoccupation with numbers. So they quit worrying about their quality and they start worrying about the quantity. The masses, uh, uh, asses in seats, became their guiding philosophy or concern rather than their doctrine and the salvation of the individual soul. In an analogous way, Protestant churches over the same period shifted their emphasis from a primary concern with the doctrinal beliefs of their members to a preoccupation with numbers. In ecclesiastical and religious circles, attendance came to count for more than genuine adherence. Nothing could show better the late 19th century Protestant Church's altered identity as an eager participant in the emerging consumer society than its obsession with popularity and its increasing disregard of intellectual issues. So the birth of anti intellectualism in America, which is. Uh, Tantamount to the birth of the consumer society and, and numbers and, and calculations matter more than quality and purity and fidelity. As they said in The Simpsons, the church, the old church is, your church is skewing pious, right? One of the most best lines ever in that show. They, they, they bring in, uh, Reverend Lovejoy brings in uh, marketing experts to figure out what's wrong with their church or why they can't get more people. And she says, well, we study it your church is skewing pious beautiful funny hilarious way of putting it and that's what they're saying here the church isn't a place that's supposed to be about popularity it's supposed to be a place for life coaching kicking your ass stop messing things up for everybody else stop being overly concerned with yourself you're born in original sin and buddy you need to worry about about uh controlling that as best you can okay because that's all you can hope to do you see they need that they need to hear that to keep them in line if you start pandering to them, it's very similar to the white cause. The white cause is not about pandering. Oh, I'm going to give you health and education and welfare. The white cause is about, you tired of getting a shat on and killed in the streets? Come with us if you want to live. Come with me if you want to live. Say it just like Arnold. That's what the white cause is about. Not solving all your spiritual problems and your physical. It's about defending you. And it's about your self-respect. We don't want to be shat on because we're white We're tired of that. We've seen that our whole lives. You see? There's a parallel there. The vitiation, vichy, vichy, the, the weakening, and the near disappearance of the Calvinist tradition have been sufficiently lamented and perhaps insufficiently understood. Okay. Obsession with popularity and increasing disregard of intellectual issues. This is what I say when I say whites are too willing to pander to the conservative base of the pyramid where the numbers are and maintaining their actual doctrine. And they indeed, they mock anyone who advises staying true to principles as a Puritan. But when you accept people who accept Jews or who let Jews into their organization, you're going to be taken over by them and by that mentality. And you're not going to go anywhere. It's in your our racial self-interest i.e. good for whites to be principled the vit- vici- vitiation i don't know why that's so hard to pronounce i guess cuz i'm not exactly sure how it's pronounced the vitiation and and vitia vitiated and near disappearance of the calvinist tradition have been sufficiently lamented but perhaps in, insufficiently understood the numerous historians and theologians of the last four decades who have recorded and mourned its loss themselves constitute an official school which can be loosely termed Neo-Orthodox. In analyzing Calvinism's decline, however, they have not examined all the evidence at their disposal. They have provided important studies of the effects of the democratic experiment in a new and unsettled land, effects all tending to a liberal creed in theology, as in politics, Immigration on a scale unparalleled in the modern world, huge labor resources facilitating rapid urbanization and industrialization, amalgamation of diverse cultural heritage, often at the level of their lowest common denominator, yet they have neglected what might be called the social history of Calvinist theology. That is what the particular people, the carriers of the Calvinist theology, actually did socially. They have given scant consideration to the changing nature of the ministry, changing nature of the ministry as a profession, or to the men who entered its ranks during the critical decades between eighteen twenty and eighteen seventy five. Now you remember, she's writing a PhD thesis and A PhD thesis has to be original research, so she's staking out territory she is asserting is uncovered and that she is going to study seriously and come up with uh, good information about, thereby extending, uh, contributing her might to the uh, hill of human knowledge, as Macon might say. His might was contributed to national letters, but her might would be contributing a better understanding, say... uh, of the social history of calvinist theology how it evolved in the u.s you understand now so she's basically saying that socially it changed and a different type of man entered the ranks during the middle decades of the 1800s and so that by 1875 it was a profoundly different religion than what it was in 1800 and the Catholics would say that's the nature of Protestantism. It always and it invariably degrades. And that Americanism itself is a competing ideology that is based on uh, Protestantism. And it itself is degraded. Whereas they keep the old faith, which is funny because I was just reading yesterday about a a splinter of a splitter of true Catholics. The SSPX are the ones who reject Vatican II. And Richard Williams, who quote-unquote, denies the Holocaust, was one of them. The Catholics readmitted some of the priests of the SSPX, but the SSPX kicked out Williamson, and now I think he and some others have, yet again, a group called the Resistance, which is a splinter off the SSPX splinter. So, Catholicism splinters as inevitably as Protestantism does, but they simply refuse to acknowledge that. Nor do they acknowledge that they have changed in their own doctrines, in many of them. Vatican uh, two is proof of that. Others could be cited. Anyway, we're talking about the uh, so changing uh, social history of Calvinist theology. They have given scant consideration to the changing nature of the ministry as a profession or to the men who entered its ranks during the critical decades between 1820 and 1875, and they have overlooked another group central to the rituals of that Victorian sentimentalism that did so much to gut Calvinist orthodoxy. So those are the two poles. Little Eva's most ardent admirers, the active middle-class Protestant women, whose supposedly limited intelligence's liberal piety was in part designed to flatter. So she's posing as opposites, as polar opposites and competitors, Calvinist orthodoxy and middle-class feminine Victorian sentimentalism. Which gives rise to consumer culture, or is uh, takes place at the same time, simultaneous with it. So keep that in mind. Calvinist orthodoxy with its hard masculine intellectual rigor versus soft, feminine, Victorian sentimentality. The irony is that the feminist is on the side basically of the uh, more rigorous type, even though she enjoys some of the the literary piffle that uh, was pronounced uh, in common uh, uh, and, and known as Victorian, how it defines Victorianism. As if in fear of contamination. So but but and also keep that in mind, little the middle class Protestant women whose supposedly limited intelligences, liberal piety was in part designed to flatter. As if in fear of contamination, historians have ignored the claims of what Harriet Beecher Stowe astutely called quote pink and white tyranny, close quote the drive of the 19th century American women to gain power through the exploitation of their feminine identity as their society defined it. And I I notice I've underlined, I wrote in the margin, where women dominate, mediocrity prevails. That was my summation as I was reading this. These women did not hold offices or own businesses they had little formal status in their culture, nor apparently did they seek it. Now we're getting to parts of that I, I drew a line by because it's important. They were not usually declared feminists or radical reformers, increasingly exempt from the responsibilities of domestic industry as America prospered. They were in a state of sociological transition. You no, know, going from hard work and farm gals just trying to stay alive and, and breed a few kids who don't die in, in their early years to cosseted middle class types. They comprise the bulk of educated churchgoers, so they're the main client or customer base for the new churches. While the manly men are off building the society, they comprise the bulk of educated churchgoers and the vast majority of the dependable reading public. In ever greater numbers, they edited magazines and wrote books for other women like themselves. They were becoming the prime... These fucking dogs would shut up. I hope you're not hearing that, and I apologize if you are. There's nothing I can do about these stupid dogs barking. They were becoming the prime consumers of American culture. As such, they exerted an enormous influence on the chief male purveyors of that culture, the liberal literate ministers, and popular writers who were being read while Melville and Thoreau Thoreau were being ignored. So the changing nature of the ministry, the changing nature of the body politic, the rise of women who are not radicals or reformers or feminists, they're feminine, but they have their own tastes. And increasingly, the males who purvey this stuff, the male writers, the popular writers and the ministers who who want to make money, are increasingly recognizing what's going on and deliberately writing for it. And this is changing American culture and giving birth to a new kind of culture and a new kind of person. This liberal piety and this weak sentimentalism in the place of actual rigor. Telling people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. VNN has always been on the side of what you need to hear. Right? Right? And you have to have people who are, like me, who are descended from these old hardcore uh, uh, Congregationalist or Calvinist types who are willing to tell you what you need to hear because they're not overly concerned with being agreeable because they don't find it unpleasant to be disagreeable. <laughs> like my dad, I told you the anecdote before. My dad told my uh, English teacher, does your bad attitude carry over into the classroom? <laughs> she was bitching about something in a parent teacher conference, I like to think that's the act the true Linder spirit, and I try to carry it on, and that's from my German side I and mean, Germans aren't even known for being obnoxious like the English Puritan side, but anyway, now let's see here. oops, I skipped ahead now. Anyway, so the people of the ministry who are going into the ministry and the people of the ministry are serving are changing over the eighteen hundreds. They're becoming softer, more more not per se leftist. They're they're kind of conservative in a way, but they're intellectually softer in a way that will eventually be turned into social political leftism in the nineteen hundreds. You see? So while the the good hardcore serious uh writers who dealt with more even moral themes that victorians would in a different way or but who mostly dealt with a dynamic economic aspect of american culture and what is manliness and what is a civilization what is morality those writers in america were ignored the melville and the thoreau uh comparatively ignored less popular than the ones who are catering to this new class of uh, 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 person, this, this middle class woman. Writers had never received public support. Ministers ceased to do so after 1833 when the disestablishment, that's what disestablished, we're not supposed to have any established religion, no national state religion the way they do other places, but some of the colonies were essentially founded by religious groups and they were established religions, but they, over time as they grew, they became disestablished and more secular After 1833, when the disestablishment of the Protestant Church became officially complete in the United States. After 1833, there's no more established Protestant churches anywhere. In very real ways, says Anne Douglas, authors and clergymen were on the market. They could hardly afford to ignore their feminine customers and competitors. What bound the minister and the lady together with the popular writer was their shared preoccupation with the lighter productions of the press. They wrote poetry, fiction, memoirs, sermons, and magazine pieces of every kind. What distinguished them from the writer and made them uniquely central agents in the process of sentimentalization, which I underlined, so the minister, lady, and popular writer, are engaged in writing the lighter softer stuff the process of sentimentalization even as the the men are out conquering the world the physical world the women are, are softening up the interior mental world and making it kind of a not what their idea of nice is taste what the woman's idea of nice light or tasteful is is coming to dominate it's not so much as coming to dominate a culture it's it's the creation of this culture What distinguished them from the writer and made them uniquely central agents in the process of sentimentalization, the process of sentimentalization, this book undertakes to explore, is the fact that their consuming interest in literature was relatively new. At the turn of the 19th century, 1800, the prominent Edwardsian minister Nathaniel Emmons, E-M-M-O-N-S, returned a novel by Sir Walter Scott, lent to him by a friend, with protestations of genuine horror. Whereas Scott was greatly admired in the South, but up North they didn't like that. A scant 50 years later, serious ministers and Orthodox professors of theology were making secular literature a concern and even an occupation. So before they were concerned with theology, and now they're turning it to lighter popular literature or serious literature but in any case, secular literature. During the same period, women writers gradually flooded the market with their efforts. While a female author at the beginning of the 19th century was considered by definition an aberration from her sex, by its close she occupied an established, if not a respected place. The Victorian lady and minister were joining and changing the literary scene. Northeastern clergymen and middle-class literary women lacked power of any crudely tangible type, and they were careful not to lay claim to it. Instead, they wished to exert influence, quote-unquote, which they eulogized as a religious force. They were asking for nothing more than offhand attention, and not even much of that. Influence was to be discreetly omnipresent and omnipotent. This was the suasion of moral and psychic nurture and it had a good deal less to do with the faith of the past and a good deal more to do with the advertising industry of the future than its proponents would have liked to believe. They exerted their influence chiefly through literature, which was just in the process of becoming a mass medium. The press offered them the chance they were seeking to be unobtrusive and everywhere at the same time. They inevitably confused theology with religiosity, that is, serious arguments about God for the the external symbols of the same religiosity. They inevitably confused theology with religiosity, religiosity with literature, and literature with self-justification. They understandably attempted to stabilize and advertise in their work the values that cast their recessive position in the most favorable light. Even as they took full advantage of the new commercial possibilities technological revolutions in printing had made possible, they exercised an enormously conservative influence on their society. On a thematic level, they specialized in the domestic and religious concerns considered appropriate for members of their profession or sex. But content was not the most important aspect of their work, nor of its conservative impulse. Ministerial and feminine authors were as involved with the method of consumption as with the article consumed. Despite their often prolific output, they were, in a curious sense, more interested in the business of reading than in that of writing. The business of reading, rather than the business of writing. Indeed, this book, while focused upon written sources, might be described in one sense as a study of readers. A study of readers and of those who shared and shaped their taste. Of course, involvement and identification between authors and their readers was characteristically and broadly Victorian. Henry James could rebuke Anthony Trollope for his constant asides to the reader, for his casual admissions that he was making up a story to please an audience, but Trollope was in the majority. To ask a Victorian author, American or British, not to address his readers was a bit like asking a modern-day Telecaster to ignore his viewers. Literature then, like television now, was in the early phase of intense self-consciousness, characteristic of a new mass medium. The transactions between cultural buyer and seller, producer and consumer, shape both the content and the form. The American groups I am discussing, however, showed an extraordinary degree even by Victorian standards, of market-oriented alertness to their customers. They had a great deal in common with them. The well-educated intellectual minister of the 18th century, the 1700s, read omnivorously. So priests in the 1700s are reading omnivorously, or preachers. They're intellectuals, basically, They were in the God business, but they're still intellectuals. But the dense argumentative tracts he tackled forced him to think, not to read in our modern sense. To think rather than to read in our modern sense. That's an interesting idea. Metaphorically speaking, he was producing, not consuming, because he's interacting with the text and coming up with new thoughts based on it. His mid 19th century descendant was likely to show a love of fiction and poetry and a distaste for polemical theology. He doesn't want to fight anymore. He wants to love. He wants to read stuff he likes. It's like ice cream versus you know, something good for you like red meat or vegetables. So he goes from being intellectually concerned with uh, important distinctions to a consumer of written material by the mid-19th century from the 1700s. He preferred light to heavy reading. By the same token, numerous observers remarked on the fact that countless young Victorian women spent much of their middle-class girlhoods prostrate on chaise lounges with their heads buried in, quote, worthless novels. Their grandmothers, the critics insinuated, had spent their time studying the Bible and performing useful household chores. Reading, in its new form, was many things. Among them, it was an occupation for the unemployed Narcissistic self-education for those excluded from the harsh school of practical competition. So reading is degeneracy. Isn't that funny from the perspective of 2015? Literary men of the cloth and middle-class women writers of the Victorian period knew from first-hand evidence that literature was functioning more and more as a form of leisure, a complicated mass dream life in the busiest, most wide-awake society in the world. Sort of escapism for consumers. They could not be altogether ignorant that literature was revealing and supporting a special class, a class defined less by what its members produced than by what they consumed. When the minister and the lady put pen to paper, they had ever in their minds their reading counterparts. The small scale, the intimate scenes, the chatty tone of many of their works complement the presumably comfortable posture and domestic backdrop of their readers. They're not writing vital stuff engage in the masculine pursuit of ultimate understanding of what's going on, take it where it may, lead where it may, they are writing conventional, safe, chatty, friendly, warm, inviting, carbohydrate material for uh, people who want to consume that. They wrote not just to win adherence to their views, but to make converts to literature, to sustain and encourage the habit of reading itself. Inevitably, the more serious writers like Melville attempted alternately to re-educate, defy, and ignore a public addicted to the absorption of sentimental fare. Some write for the mass, some write for the minority, and the mass happens to be particularly feminine at that time because the men are off doing business. To suggest that problems of professional class or sexual status played a part in the creation of the character of 19th century and 20th century American culture is not, hopefully, to suggest a conspiracy view of history. The ministers and women I am considering were intent on claiming culture as their particular or their peculiar property. Uh, let Let me hit that again. The ministers and women I am considering were intent on claiming culture as their peculiar property. One conferring on them a special duty and prerogative. They were rightly insecure about their position in the broader society, yet they sought to gain indirect and compensatory control. Yet they were not insincere, ill intentioned, or simple minded. It must be remembered how these people saw themselves, and with what reason. They were Christians reinterpreting their faith as best they could in terms of the needs of their society. Their conscious motives were good, even praiseworthy. Their effects were not altogether bad. Under the sanction of sentimentalism, lady and clergymen were able to cross the cruel lines laid down by sexual stereotyping in ways that were clearly historically important and undoubtedly personally fulfilling. She could become aggressive, even angry, in the name of various holy causes. He could become gentle, even nurturing, for the sake of moral overseeing. Whatever their ambiguities of motivation, both believed they had a genuine redemptive mission in their society to propagate the potentially matriarchal values of nurture, generosity, and acceptance to create the, quote, culture of feelings, culture of the feelings, unquote, that John Stuart Mill was to find during the same period in Wordsworth. It is hardly altogether their fault that their efforts intensified sentimental, rather than matriarchal values. Okay, so they're trying to add some elements of softness to society, which isn't inherently a bad thing she's saying, but it it, it tends to uh, turn into uh, sentimentalism, which is really not a good thing for literature or for society, I think is what she's saying. Moreover, whatever the errors of the sentimentalists, they paid for them. The losses sustained by the ministers and the women involved, as well as by the culture, which was their arena, were enormous. The case of the ministers is clear-cut. They lost status and respect. So as they softened and liberalized, no one respected them. And that's what they see today. The 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 churches that do well are the hardcore ones, the fundamentalist ones, the ones that, that pound the doctrine on the table, not the ones that are soft, modern, liberal, tolerant, the way the leftist... Uh, tell them to be that become just another institution although some i mean by some i mean me would argue the church is inherently liberal because of its doctrine that we're all part of god's body reflecting his image and likeness of individual souls of of eternal and imperishable value that in itself i argue is going to lead in this direction but that's an argument for a different day The case of the ministers is clear-cut. As they, as they became liberalized and more tolerant, and more sentimental, more involved with women, they lost status and respect. The case of the women is equally painful but more difficult to discuss, especially in the atmosphere of controversy that attends feminist argument today, i.e. in 1970s, mid-70s. I must add a personal note here. As I researched and wrote this book, I experienced a confusion which perhaps other women scholars have felt in recent years. I expected to find my fathers and my mothers. Instead, I discovered my fathers and my sisters. The best of the men had access to solutions and and occasionally inspiring ones, which I appropriate only with the anxiety and effort that attend genuine aspiration. The problems of the women correspond to mine with a frightening accuracy that seems to set us outside the process of history. The answers of even the finest of them were often mine, and sometimes largely un- unacceptable to me. I am tempted to account my response socialization, if not treachery, siding with the enemy, but I think that is wrong. She's basically saying that the women w- went. Th- she wants the women to have power but in a different way, and she basically. Sides with the intellectual rigor of the fathers rather than the middle-class sentimentalism of the, uh, of the class that she's describing, of the softened ministers and the women. I will appeal to your, uh, womanly good nature to ignore any extraneous noises you may hear, such as from scraping, uh something or others and barking dogs erupting canines not a big dog fan it really doesn't bother me when the Chinese eat them now with that obiter dictum discharged probably stepped on a worm Ned the good book tells us that a a gentle answer turneth away wrath And remember that other line in the Simpsons, he goes, you know, why don't you find another church? They're really all pretty much the same. That in itself is a humorous expression of what she's talking about here, the way that as the theological study declined and the intellectual rigor declined, it, it became merely a simple social function, and that's what you see today. Today, the intellectual level is a level of, do you accept Jesus as your personal Savior? Because if you don't, you can't go to heaven. And, and what's more, I won't give you any of my dirt jar here on earth. So, you know, you got a powerful reason to accept that, Jesus. Because my dirt's good and heaven's even better. They got the best eating dirt in heaven, I heard. Do I engage in caricature? After all, I'm an artisanal insultist. It says so in my Twitter files. I will not be compelled to respect that which I find unworthy of respect. And the insistence that it is unmannerly to mock people who are stupid does not interest me in the slightest. All right, now and listen to what she says here. This is this is why we can respect her. She says, siding with the enemy, but I think that is wrong. I have a respect for the so-called toughness, for so-called toughness, in quotes, not as good in itself, not isolated and reified as it so often is in male-dominated cultures, but as the necessary preservative for all virtues, even those of gentleness and generosity. So you can be feminine You can be tough and be feminine. They're not opposed, is what she's saying. There are feminine ways of being tough, just as there's masculine ways. They're both valid. My respect is deeply ingrained. My commitment to feminism requires that I explore it, not that I abjure it. Much more important, it does no good to shirk the fact that 19th century American society tried to damage women like Harriet Beecher Stowe and succeeded. Well, not as much as she tried to damage American society and succeeded. (laughs) America didn't even exist after her work was done. It is undeniable that the oppressed preserved and were intended to preserve crucial values threatened in the larger culture. But it is equally true that no one would protest oppression with fervor or justification if it did not in part accomplish its object The curtailment of the possibilities of growth for significant portions of a given community. So here we're getting a little of feminist. While the men are off building society and creating the wealth and income and material goods that allow these cosseted women to uh, create this culture of sentimentalism, they're actually oppressing the women. She's starting to verge into that line, but she's honest enough she won't carry it too far. 19th century American women were oppressed and damaged. Inevitably, the influence they exerted in turn on their society was not altogether beneficial. She's basically, this is the Marx claim of false consciousness. They've been imbued with patriarchal values and suffered patriarchal impression. And themselves, even in the work of their agents of the writing and the production of this enjoyment of this literary culture, are expressing the same values that are oppressing them, is what she's saying. They've internalized the patriarchy. The cruelest aspect of the process of oppression is the logic by which it forces its objects to be oppressive in turn to do the dirty work of their society in several senses. Melville put the matter well. Author of Moby Dick. Did you know, I'm reading that now. I dug it up today on PDF. Moby Dick is actually hyphenated. I did not know that. I'm a big believer in using or not using hyphens according to the Grammatical correctness. I, I really don't like when people don't hyphenate compound adjectives and such. It bothers me. Melville, Melville put the matter well. Colon. Weakness or even depravity in the oppressed is no apology for the oppressor, but rather an additional stigma to him as being, in a large view, the effect and not the cause of oppression. To view the victims of oppression simply as martyrs and heroes, however, however undeniably heroic and martyred as they often were, is only to perpetuate the sentimental heresy I am attempting to study here. So women are the victims and the agents of their own oppression, wittingly or unwittingly. I have been more interested in the effects than in the conscious motives of the women and ministers under consideration. She's trying to figure out how they've affected things not judging their motives. For there is no better indication of their dilemma than the often wide and tragic divergence between the two. That is, what you try to accomplish and what you actually achieve are often two different things. Everybody teaches, but not everybody knows the subject that he's teaching. He fancies he's teaching one thing. He's actually producing rather a different effect. That's kind of what she's saying. In my words, not hers. In the process of sentimentalization, which they aided... Many women and ministers espoused, at least in theory, to to so-called passive virtues, admirable in themselves and sorely needed in American life. They could not see to what alien uses their espousal might be put. Sentimentalism is a complex phenomenon. It asserts that the values a society's activity denies are precisely the ones it cherishes. It attempts to deal with the phenomenon of cultural bifurcation by the manipulation of nostalgia. Sentimentalism provides a way to protest a power to which one has already in part capitulated. It is a form of dragging one's heels. Kind of sounds like conservatism, doesn't it? It always borders on dishonesty, but it is a dishonesty for which there is no known substitute in a capitalist country. Many 19th century Americans in the Northeast acted every day as if they believed that economic expansion, urbanization, and industrialization represented the greatest good. It is to their credit that they indirectly acknowledged that the pursuit of those masculine goals meant damaging, perhaps losing another good, one they increasingly included under the feminine ideal. So the opportunity cost of all this activity and busyness and economic expansion is the loss of these other ideas which they celebrate in the the growing consumerist uh, feminized uh, culture, anti-intellectual culture. Yet the fact remains that their regret was calculated not to interfere with their actions. We remember that little Eva's beautiful death, which Stowe presents as part of the protest against slavery, in no way hinders the working of that system. The minister and the lady were appointed by their society as the champions of sensibility. They were in the position of contestants in a fixed fight. They had agreed to put on a convincing show and to lose. The fakery involved was finally crippling for all concerned. Again, note the parallel to modern conservatism. Conservatism as submission, submissiveness. The political philosophy of submission, which is ironic and how they love to, uh, with the, following the lead of their Jew bosses, talk about dimitude, submission to the Muslims. And we actually, it's submission to the Jews that we need to worry about. And the conservatives can't even see that because they don't think nowadays. And certainly their leaders aren't going to tell them because they're too busy depositing their checks from misleading the masses. The sentimentalization of theological and secular culture was an inevitable part of the self-evasion of a society both committed to laissez-faire industrial expansion and disturbed by its consequences. America, impelled by economic and social developments of international scope, abandoned its theological modes of thought at the same time its European counterparts abandoned theirs, It lacked, however, the means they possessed to create substitutes. American culture, younger and less formed than that of any European country, had not yet developed sufficiently rich and diversified secular traditions to serve as carriers for its ongoing intellectual life. The pressures for self-rationalization of the crudest kind were overpowering in a country propelled so rapidly toward industrial capitalism, with so little cultural context to slow or complicate its course. Remember what Oscar Wilde's jibed that America passed from barbarism to decadence without ever stopping at civilization. And she's roughly describing the same thing. The pressures for self-rationalization of the crudest kind were overpowering in a country propelled so rapidly toward industrial capitalism with so little cultural context to slow or complicate its course. Sentimentalism provided the inevitable rationalization of the economic order. I don't know about that or fully understand that. But. In the modernization of American culture that began in the Victorian period, some basic law of dialectical motion was disrupted, unfulfilled, perhaps disproved. Calvinism was a great faith with great limitations. It was repressive, authoritarian, dogmatic, patriarchal to an extreme. Its demise was inevitable. And in some real sense, welcome. Yet it deserved, and elsewhere at other times found, great opponents. One could argue that the logical antagonist of Calvinism was a fully humanistic, historically minded Romanticism. Exponents of such Romanticism appeared in mid 19th century America. One thinks particularly of Margaret Fuller and Herman Melville, and she'll have much to say about them later. But they were rare exponents of romanticism that might have opposed the Calvinism in an intellectually serious way Calvinism was largely defeated by an anti-intellectual sentimentalism purveyed by men and women whose victory did not achieve their finest goals and they created a culture that would then be a perfect breeding ground or petri dish for uh, Jews to come in and take over because Jews are intellectual. Calvin, let's read that, that phrase again. Calvinism was largely defeated by an anti-intellectual sentimentalism. I underlined that part when I read it. Purveyed by men and women whose victory did not achieve their finest goals. Semicolon. America lost its male-dominated theological tradition without gaining a comprehensive feminism or an adequately modernized religious sensibility. So it left a big vacuum. It was filled with, you know, cheesy ice cream instead of substantial steak and vegetables, providing good nutrition. So junk junk thought replaced solid thought, even if the solid thought is like, oh God, I gotta eat deer for thirty-five days in a row. It's still good for you. But uh it gave way to something that may have tasted better, but was ultimately of lower stature, not as good for people, the anti-intellectual sentimentalism. America lost its male-dominated theological tradition that saw the the rise of the birth of our our best universities, the end of our soul-searching, the end of the creation of serious intellectual work as the uh, profession of the actual priest, Uh, yielded to a consumer softness and anti-intellectualism so America lost its male-dominated theological tradition without gaining a comprehensive feminism or an adequately modernized religious sensibility it is crucial that I be as clear as I can here says, uh, says Douglas as she nears the end of her introduction the tragedy of 19th century Northeastern society, and we are talking about them, not the South, is not the demise of Calvinist patriarchal structures. I mean, how could a feminist lament the decline of patriarchy? But she's, she's not even considering that perhaps patriarchy is inextricably bound to serious intellectual work. She believes that serious intellectual work can be associated with feminism, and it will be her job to prove that because there are many doubters. But I think she does prove that women can achieve serious intellectual work. And they can. Some can. But they don't have to be feminists. They can be women. They don't have to be feminists. But she's saying you can, she takes these men seriously because she recognizes and is honest, she's smart enough and honest enough to admit that the men responsible for these patriarchal Calvinist traditions are intellectually serious men. They are not clowns. And that if she wants something different or better, she has to come up with an answer to their tradition and the ideas that they had. But well, first she shows the gratitude for what they did and respect for what they did reflected in her understanding and her honest treatment of what they did. How unlike every other feminist we see out there today, 30 years later, when feminism has completely degraded. Not that it was a great thing to start with, but it had a much larger share of intellectually serious people, perhaps in the 70s, than it has in the 2010s. The tragedy of 19th century Northeastern society is not the demise of Calvinist patriarchal structures, but rather the failure of a viable, sexually diversified culture to replace them. So I I think what she wants is, she wants the intellectual uh, riches and rigor without the uh, patriarchal element, but she's assuming that that is even possible. And perhaps not considering that it might not be possible. Feminization, again, the title of her book, the feminization of culture, as the ministry moves from a masculine, genuinely masculine, genuinely intellectual position and and uh, undertaking and job to something that is basically supplicating and. Uh, purveying niceness to women who so desire it. She's calling that feminization. Now why? maybe she could have called it the uh, degradation of American culture. Because it is degradation or softening of American culture. Or infantilizing or sentimentalizing of American culture. But all these are partly what she's getting at with feminization. So really, maybe even whether she realizes it or not, she equates serious work with masculinity. And she's lamenting the decline of the intellectual rigor. And she's theorizing or hoping or wishing that it could have been replaced by something as intellectual, but feminist. Is that even possible? Is she even capable of considering that it might be impossible? I don't know. Maybe we'll find out as we go along. Because even if she doesn't answer that question directly, we may be able to divine her answer between the lines. In fact, I don't see how we couldn't by the end of the book. Anyway, last couple sentences. The tragedy of 19th century Northeastern society is not the demise of Calvinist patriarchal structures, the masculine dominant priest who holds a community in thrall, almost like a rabbi, but rather the failure of a viable sexually diversified culture to replace them feminization inevitably guaranteed not simply the loss of the finest values contained in calvinism the high intellectual work and the moral seriousness but the continuation of male hegemony in different guises so feminization guaranteed male hegemony in different guises I'm not sure how that is is in, inevitable you could say that a different man, a different type of man, went to the priesthood and, and came to control this stuff, but how is that inevitable? The triumph of the feminizing sentimental forces that would generate mass culture redefined and perhaps limited the possibilities for change in American society. Sentimentalism, with its tendency to obfuscate or to cover up or make difficult to make out. To end Brown essentially. Sentimentalism with its tendency to obfuscate obfuscate the visible dynamics of development heralded the cultural sprawl that has increasingly characterized post Victorian life. So I guess the in the same way that, you know, you gauze up a picture to make it look better is what she's saying that. That's what feminization is the these middle class consumerist ideals are hiding the true power relations in society and they're thereby limiting the scope of what we can perceive and by that limiting what we can change or improve. I think that's what she's saying anyway. With that, we end the uh, the introduction. I think it's some good stuff. I really enjoy talking about it, and I want to thank you uh for listening to me today i'm alex linder i'm on the twitter twitter at uh, the linder files they banned my account under my real name you can find everything that we talk about as part of the learning college vanguard audiobooks as we call it the text of great works and discussion of same at my vnnforum.com where we have a lot of intelligent people and a not a small admixture of less intelligent people uh, but we, we're we all in the same team white, and we all want a white context where whites are safe to breed them. We want the context in which whites can uh, flourish. And that's the mission to bring that about through uh, white sovereignty and a new white nation. But it's all the soft stuff, the education that we're providing so you understand yourself in a white context for the first time in your life. It can all be found at my vnnforum.com. I encourage you, if you're a serious non-clown person, to go there and sign up. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back again with you real, real soon.